I had a dream a couple of nights ago, and you know how dreams are. You know, things are odd and strange and very unrealistic, and situations occur that don't normally occur. Uh, and really, the dream was a bit of a nightmare. And the, the dream was that I was preaching, and while I was preaching, no one was paying attention. I told you it was unrealistic. Nobody was listening. Nobody was, was tuned in. It was really this odd, strange dream. And, and up on stage, uh, there were some books and tables. And while I was up here trying to, to preach God's Word, there were people sort of milling about up here, looking at various books. There was a guy over in the corner. He was playing a tuba. Now, we're an a cappella church. How odd is that? He was playing a tuba over in the corner. And then while I was speaking, there were, there were people just kind of talking. And I was talking you know, to try to talk over all the people that were having all these side conversations going on while I was preaching. You know, there are a lot of nightmares that preachers can have, and I think that ranks right up at the top. No one was listening. But the fascinating thing about this message series we've been involved in for the last uh, four or five weeks on the Holy Spirit, it seems to me that people have been especially tuned in, especially interested in the things that, that we're trying to say. And I think that's the case because a lot of times in the past, in our movement, we almost had what I would describe as a negative theology of the Holy Spirit. That is, we knew what the Holy Spirit did not do. I'm not so sure we knew what the Holy Spirit did do. And so it seems to me that as we've been talking about this, you have been especially tuned in. So far in our message series that we're calling Poured Out, we have talked about how the Spirit empowers us for mission. We looked in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit pulled together a group of folks. They heard the gospel of Jesus in their own language, and then they were sent out into the streets with the message of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then we also talked about Spirit-led guidance. We talked about how the Holy Spirit in the Scripture is described as the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will lead us in truth. And as we strive to follow Jesus, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us. We talked a couple of weeks ago about praying in the Spirit. We looked at Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. And there we talked about how there are those moments in our lives when we don't know what we ought to pray for. Maybe life is so heavy, our, our circumstances are so difficult that we don't know what we ought to pray for, and it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit intercedes with our spirit on our behalf. Next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about spirit-empowered living. And the truth we're going to emphasize next Sunday is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead... That same Spirit lives in us and empowers us to live for Jesus. Isn't that good news? And so that'll be a great day. But this morning, we're going to talk about an issue that is deeply significant for the body of Christ. As we think about getting along in church, or as we think about having marriages that are, that are, are thriving, this, this concept is very important for that. Today, we're going to talk about, about Spirit-inspired unity. And so uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to just have the, the, uh, that passage open in your lap or on your electronic device, Ephesians chapter 4. 
Now, Paul in this passage that Barry read for us just a moment ago, he does not, Paul does not ask us to attain unity, but to maintain unity. There's a big difference. You see, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is unity that the Spirit has produced. I love the benediction at the very end of this book we know as 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul uses this phrase at the end of the book. He talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's, It's fellowship that the Spirit creates. And just as the Holy Spirit creates fellowship, so the Holy Spirit creates unity. Now, earlier in the book of Ephesians, we see how this unity was created. We get a vivid picture of this unity. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we read about about a barrier that divides two distinct groups, Jews and Gentiles. And the barrier would be the temple itself. If we could go back to the ancient world and we would walk into that temple in Jerusalem, we would know, if, because we're Gentiles, we could go only so far. And there would come a time when we would see a wall, there would be a sign, and it would tell us that as Gentiles we could go no further. We had to stop right here. We could only get so close. And so Gentiles, non-Jews, couldn't go into the very presence of God. In fact, only the high priest could go into the very presence of God one time a year during the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for, for our sins. But now Jesus, through the Spirit, has broken down the barrier. And people who were once enemies have now become family. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 18 that we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. You see, in Christ, there's unity between Jews and Gentiles. And now they they formed a new temple. Paul tells us we are, in Ephesians 2 and verse 22, we are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. Think about that beautiful image. The temple now is not made of stones. The temple now is not some physical building. No, now it's when God's people come together in unity. God now dwells there by His Spirit. We are the temple of God. The point is not that that we have to create unity. God, through Jesus, by the Spirit, has brought us together in unity. But what Paul does ask of us is that we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we hear that, that, that verse and we wonder, why is unity so important to Paul? Why is he so passionate about God's people maintaining this unity that was created by the Spirit? It's not because disunity merely makes us uncomfortable. Let's just all get along let's all make nice make no mistake about it unity is about much more than our own personal sense of comfort disunity is an affront to the gospel you see we already live in such a divided world i mean just look around we see all kinds of division i mean we see political division red states blue states 
that we see racial division we see ideological division maybe you've experienced division more personally in your own life we sometimes see division in our families or maybe even division in our marriages there are all sorts of divisions and so what does the world really need the world needs a united church the world needs to see and experience a group of God's people who are joined together in unity who are involved in something greater than any one of us you see there's already a lot of bickering in the world and the world doesn't need to see bickering in our churches because you see here's what happens when people who are part of a divided world, when they come into a church and they see a group of people that are bickering and divided, what they say is, well, I already have that in the world. I don't need to be a part of that now. It says something about what we believe about the gospel. I love that passage in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 where, where Paul says the church, it's where the manifold wisdom of God is seen Paul is describing this moment when, when the angelic host, when the heavenly, in the heavenly realms they look down and they see the church and they see a bride or they see a church or a body that's, that's, unit, that's united. And when that happens, the angelic hosts say to God, oh, I understand now, we understand. The church reflects the manifold wisdom of God. The church is where enemies become families. The church is where there are no more barriers. And while no effort is required in attaining unity, effort is required if we wish to maintain unity. We have it, and Paul is now urging the Ephesians to keep it. And because Paul knows it can be a challenge to keep unity, he urges us to work at it. He urges us to make every effort now, right before Paul says, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, in the, in the verse right before that verse, verse 2, Ephesians 4, verse 2, Paul mentions some traits, some qualities. And this week as I was reading this passage afresh once again, I couldn't help but think the qualities that are mentioned in verse 2, they look an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so, so these qualities mentioned in verse 2 are very important if we're going to be united as a church or really for, with any relationship for that matter, if we're going to have marriages where we experience a measure of unity. These qualities are needed. And so Paul tells us in verse 2, be, notice, be completely humble. Now, in order to be humble, we need to renounce <clears throat> our tendency towards self-centeredness. One of the greatest threats to marriage, one of the greatest threats to the unity of a church is when you have a group of self-centered people who come together. Because the problem is, we often want our way. We want things to be done like we wish for things to be done. And so I want to turn each of these traits, character traits, into a, a statement that will help each of us make a commitment to unity in our marriages or unity in our local church. And so, I believe humility is evident in our lives when we're willing to say, I may be wrong. See, that, that's what a humble person says. 
A person who's filled with pride, who always wants their own way, is never willing to say, well, I may be wrong. That's what a humble person says. Now, as I said, this is not only important in our church, but it's important in our marriages. Men, it's important for us to have this spirit. It's important for us to say, I may be wrong. Men, would you repeat this phrase after me? Let's just all say it together. I may be wrong. Now, some of you were pretty timid in saying that. Women, would you say that with me as well? Would you say that? I may be wrong. Now, some of you didn't say it at all. But the truth of the matter is, if, if our marriages are going to be what God intends for them to be, if our church is going to be what God intends for it to be, we have to have a spirit of humility. Paul says, be completely humble. And when we're humble... We're people who say, I may be wrong. Paul continues by telling us to be completely humble and gentle. Now, a gentle person is in contrast to someone who is is harsh. And harshness is often seen in how we use our words. James, the Lord's brother, was so concerned about how we use our words that in in the book that bears his name, the book of James, in James chapter 3, he says the tongue, it's, it's really powerful. And the image that he uses to help us understand how destructive our, our words can be is he says our tongue is like, well, it's like a spark. And that tiny spark can set a whole forest ablaze. All it takes is two, three, four people to start using their tongues in such negative ways to set a whole church ablaze. And so Paul says, be be careful. James, the Lord's brother, says, be careful how we use use our tongues or use the things that we say. And so I want to say this. I want to turn this phrase, this idea about being completely humble and gentle, I want to turn that into a phrase that will help all of us commit ourselves to this sense of unity in our church and in our, in our uh, families. A gentle person is someone who says this, I am willing to listen and to change. That's a gentle spirit. Can you see how both phrases are important? I am willing to listen. Listening's hard. Listening's difficult. And yet a a gentle person listens, listens carefully. But I'm not only willing to listen, I'm also willing to listen, and I'm willing to change. You see, growth always requires change. Whether we're talking about congregational growth or we're talking about individual growth, and yet we know change is hard. We like status quo. I know I do. We like keeping things just the same. We like doing things like we've always done them. We resist change. And we resist growth. But a gentle person says, I'm, I'm willing to listen. And I'm willing to change. But Paul continues. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. And then he says, be patient. You see, if we're going to get along, patience is really needed. But often the truth is, we want what we want, and we want it now. 
And yet I believe when the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, the Holy Spirit will cultivate this sense of patience. You know, one of the things we see about God, about the nature of God, you read the Old Testament. And one of the things you will see about God is God is so patient, so patient with his people. Or we can make it even more personal than that. You know, one of the things I know about how God has, has reacted to me is God is incredibly patient with me. And so one of the traits we need is we need a spirit of patience. And so here's, here's the line, here's the commitment we'll make. I will give you time to think it through. Now, we're often in a hurry, but God is not. I've said before, the only time God gets in a hurry is when he runs to meet a sinner. And yet God, God is so patient with us, and we need to be patient with one another. And finally, Paul says we are to bear with one another in love. Now, here's where it gets hard. It requires real effort right here. <clears throat> this is the person who says, I will put up with you even when we disagree. Now, why would we do that? Why would we put up with anyone with whom we disagree? It's because we love that other person. It's because we love one another. And this is not only important in a church, but can you see how this is important in a family, in a marriage? You know how it is. Before you get married, you, you're spending every waking minute with that beautiful girl that you can't wait to marry. And in the course of time, you go out and you spend hours and hours talking with one another on the phone and talking with one another you know, at the restaurant. I mean, you have these deep, wonderful, rich conversations. And you think to yourself at some point, wow, we agree on virtually everything. I mean, we've talked about everything. And we're in lockstep. I mean, we agree about theories of child raising. We agree about movie choices. We like the same kind of movies. We agree on food choices. I mean, we agree on virtually everything. And then you get married, and six months later, and you realize we agree on nothing. Have you noticed this? And so why do you bear with one another with whom you agree? It's because you love that person. And yet the amazing thing in church, I'm always amazed. And in my years of ministry, I'm always amazed at how, how quickly people disengage from one another because they have a little disagreement. Uh, certainly there are some core things we've got to agree on. And Paul mentions those in the very next couple of verses. In verses 4 and 5, he talks about, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, you know, one church, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. He mentions all of those things. But here's the thing I have found in, in work in a church. It's maddening sometimes. Because the thing churches end up fighting and feuding over typically are not the seven ones. They're peripheral things. They're secondary things. They're things that are far less important. But if we're going to get along with one another, we need to say, I'll put up with you even when we disagree. And so let's let the Holy Spirit of God work in us to, to develop a spirit that says, I may be wrong. A spirit that says, I'm willing to listen and change. A spirit that says, I'll give you time to think it through. A spirit that says, I'll put up with you even, even when we disagree. Now, if we're not careful when we talk about, about unity, one of the things we can very easily devolve into is we think somehow unity is uniformity. See, uniformity means we, <clears throat> we all look alike. We think alike, we dress alike, we, 
we do everything just alike, and this is not healthy. Uniformity means there's a sense of sameness on the surface. Unity goes much deeper. And one of the things about College Hills is it's always been a part of our vision. We have a vision for, for, uh, uh, to, to be multi-generational. And that's not uniformity, that's, that's unity. We don't want to be the kind of church where, where everyone is the same, everybody thinks the same, we're one race, we're one age, we all think alike, we're all the same. That is not healthy. But what unity is, it's when, though we're different, and we have different views and different opinions and different takes, though we have a difference in Jesus, we're unified. He that is above us and within us is the one who brings us together. Now, there's something interesting in this passage, and we don't have time to, to go in, into it in depth because our time is about up. But in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through about verse uh, 5, he's talking there about this idea uh, of, of one, of, of unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and on and on it goes. But when we get to verse 7, there's an interesting little subtle transition. He starts there talking about diversity. Because in verse 7 he says, But to each one of us grace has been given. To each one of us. We all have different giftings, different perspectives, different ideas. You see, Jews and Gentiles, and that's who he's writing to in the Ephesian letter, Jews and Gentiles could not have been more diverse think about it they were racially diverse jews and gentiles were very very different and yet they together they were part in in one body they were culturally diverse i mean the culture of the jews and the culture of the gentiles were was very distinct they had a diversity of religious experiences on the one hand, you had pagan Gentiles who would go down to the temple of Diana and there there was temple prostitution. Can you imagine that? And yet on the other hand, here are the Jews and they had this very strict morality. They had these dietary laws and rules and regulations and things you could do on only certain days. And yet even though they were so distinct, Jews and Gentiles and all their diversity in Christ experienced unity and you put that on the screen jews and gentiles in all their diversity in christ experienced unity you see unity in diversity it leads to maturity and so as we come to the end of our message today let me ask you to do something for me on a scale of one to ten where would you where would you rate your own sense of maturity in christ 10 being I'm very mature in Christ, 1 being I'm just getting going and I'm, I'm a brand new, maybe uh, someone who's just walking with Jesus. You might say, well, how would you, how would you even do that? How do you know? Uh, someone might say, well, uh, maybe it's your commitment to prayer. Uh, maybe that helps you to define it. Or somebody else says, no, maybe it's, it's, it's the fruit we read in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of that. Maybe that's how we define where we are on the scale. Let's use Paul's Paul's way of thinking. Paul would ask us, how committed are you to unity? How committed are you to the unity of the body of Jesus? He said, That's, that'll tell you how, how mature you really are. Unity without diversity, it leads to uniformity, a bland sameness. Diversity, 
without unity leads to discord and disharmony. But maturity grows from a beautiful diversity. It's when a, a group of people comes together and their, their diverse gifts and they're diverse in how they look, they're diverse in how they think. There's all sorts of diversity, diverse ages. And yet it's when a body of people comes together in Jesus' name, using those gifts for his glory, that the church starts to look an awful lot like Jesus. And that's such a winsome, beautiful thing. Final verse in verse 13, Paul says this. This is really his goal. He says, the goal is that we will all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure, the fullness of Christ. Hear Paul's words again. Church, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see what this world needs? This world sees too much division. This world sees a lot of fighting and arguing. This world sees that in the world, and God forbid they would ever see that in the church. The world needs a church, a church that stands under the authority of Jesus, a church that's focused on him, a church to his hands and feet. This morning, would you be standing with me, please? Would you stand? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to ask you a couple of questions before we, before we pray, and then you have an opportunity to respond. So the first question I want to ask you, and I want you to think about, how committed are you to the unity of College Hills? What will you do to put Paul's words into practice? What will a commitment to unity look like in your life? Almighty God, we are so grateful that your son came to this world and died on a cross so we could experience unity so we could be a part of your body, a place where enemies become family, a place where barriers are knocked down. God, we know we don't always see everything exactly alike. God, we know that's a, that's a testimony to this community when though we don't see everything exactly alike, we still dwell together in unity. God, we know that that Jesus said before he went to the cross in John 17 that Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for that because really that's the final apologetic. That a world that's so divided and a world that's so lost when they see your people united in Jesus, it helps them to understand something of the power of the gospel. God, we know the gospel draws us to you, but the gospel also draws us to one another. God, I'm grateful for this church, and would you please be with us as we yield ourselves continually to the Spirit, as we each make every effort to keep that unity that you, that you developed for us.
in Jesus. Thank you.